Welcome to the VIP Jazzwall Report. You know that we always get interesting people on our show from different walks of life, but the common theme among, among, among them is that they live their lives with dilemmas and challenges beyond the ordinary. Today is no different. You're going to hear the story of a man who swore to take a bullet for the President of the United States, but then decided that the President was no longer worthy of his life, and when he left the President, he moved on to challenge the whole political system because he doesn't believe that the institution of the presidency is living up to its expectations. Our guest was a Secret Service agent and part of the Presidential Protective Division. He served under George Bush and also recently President Obama. He's received a string of commendations throughout his career and was one of the most distinguished agents to have ever served the president. He's now running in the Maryland congressional race for 2014, and he's out to make a difference. It's my pleasure to have on the show today Mr. Dan Bongino. Welcome to the show, Dan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So you left behind a career that's really spanned 12 years as one of the all-time top secret agents to run for political office. You sacrifice a steady salary, an exciting life, an amazing status, a patriotic job. So I'm dying to ask you this. Are you crazy or just so disillusioned by what you've seen? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot. We're not uh, a society of risk-takers anymore um, like we used to be. So people are baffled as to how in a recession a Secret Service agent at the top of his game would walk away from a secure job Secure pension, secure benefits, yeah. and and I don't like to put lipstick on it. It was a tough decision. It wasn't a decision I made flippantly or a decision I made overnight. But mm. we're at a really you know treacherous time, and I, I don't want to you know overstate it. I don't like hyperbole, but we're in real trouble economically, politically. Our government's fractured right now, and being a passionate follower of you know libertarian conservatism, I felt like uh, frankly I needed to get in the game and given the uh, limitations of the Hatch Act, and which really uh, prevents you from getting involved, I thought it was time to so-called get off the couch and get in the game. So I did, and um, I'm proud of my decision. But what did Obama do so wrong that you had to leave? Well, you know, the problem now is the very idea that made America exceptional, and, and we are exceptional. That's that's a quantitative and a qualitative statement. We are very different. We are the exception to the rule of failed governments, which has really been the legacy of human civilization. Governments usually uh, increase their own power at the expense of their people, and you know tyranny follows next. Well, our government's always been different. Well, the very idea of America, I think, uh, under the last uh, you know five years, things foundational ideas are, are really under attack. And I, I haven't worked under the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administration. I, I've been very bipartisan in my criticism, by the way. I don't think uh, the Republican Party, as we know it, has had all the answers either. So please don't take that the wrong way. But, you know, I don't feel like Bill Clinton, although I disagreed with a lot of his policies, really disagreed with ideas like free markets, you know, patient-controlled health care. I mean, these are just foundational ideas. These aren't, you know, in any way questionable amongst anyone with common sense. I felt like this administration really questions those very principles, and that's a very different – that's more of an ideological argument than it is a political one. I had a real real problem with that. Um, so, again, I felt like I had to do something and not talk about doing something. You know, there's a lot of talkers, and I, I think talking is great if it motivates action. If it doesn't, it's just – CO2 being but what about. was the defining moment for you when you said, you know, enough is enough, I've, I've got to leave? 
Well, there were a few of them. I wouldn't, wouldn't just one, but the ones that really stand out with. I remember listening to a, a speech. I was at uh, USC, the University of, uh, of uh, Southern California, mm. uh, the San Luis Obispo campus, and the president was giving a speech, and the speech was really, really confrontational. I did not think it was really an appropriate political speech for a president, and I just watched all of these younger men and women almost blindly applauding what was, I thought, an attack on the very essence of free markets. And I thought that they even know what they're applauding. Well, what was he saying that had you totally worked up? Uh, it was the whole fairness uh, argument he'd always given, that, that uh, somehow free markets were unfair and it was more fair to give your money to the government, or actually not give, for them to take it and then give it to their crony friends. That was the gist of the speech. I mean, I can't quote it verbatim, but I just thought to myself... Really? I mean, and these, these, these poor kids believe this? And it just started this cascade of, of disappointment in the president. Um, and I didn't want to make a statement, I want to be clear, by leaving off of his detail. I mean, I had an obligation and swore an obligation to protect his life, even at the expense of mine. And I took that obligation extremely seriously. So I, I, I had to wait. I didn't want to leave off the detail because I knew that would be a major story. I knew a lot of people in the press from the press pool. And I didn't want to create any unnecessary controversy for the president. So I waited and I listened to, unfortunately, how to sit through more of those kinds of speeches. And it just degraded me. And I remember coming home one night and looking at my, you know, my neighborhood and thinking, you know, there are, I live in a middle-class neighborhood in, you know, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. And thinking, well, these people are really struggling right now. And, what, you know, what's my skin in the game? You know, my salary's secure. And you're talking about all this stuff. And that was really kind of the breaking point. And, my wife and I decided that it was time to it was time to do something and not talk about doing something. So uh, I left. I resigned from the Baltimore field office. So before anything else, you're really a patriot. Well, I would, yeah. I mean, that's the label I appreciate the most when people tweet it to me and put it on my Facebook. I mean, it, that really means something to me. That's a deeper term than the way it's thrown around uh, currently with some. So yeah, I I, I do appreciate that, and I, I am very patriotic. I do have. Uh, you know, I still get goosebumps every time I hear that Star Spangled Banner, <laughs> so it means a lot to me. But Secret Service uh, being part of it was a large part of your life. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, the, it was as defining as any job can be. I remember that old, you know, U.S. Army recruiting commercial. It's not just a job, it's an adventure. Well, in the Secret Service, that is absolutely true i mean it really is not a job in as much as you know you go to work you cash your paycheck you know you come home and it's just not like it's an all-encompassing uh it's like a cloud that follows you everywhere your blackberry's going off all the time you're a response agent you're a criminal agent you're a protection agent their lives are in your hands you can never let go um of any there's really no downtime so to say there's no off switch there's no I used to laugh I used to say there's no uh, there's no disconnecting from the matrix but should really but should secret service agents really be patriots because if you don't agree with the administration you're never going to be able to do the job of protecting the president impartially no I see I don't agree uh, that that's never ever been the case I mean I, I did it and did it I would argue almost the opposite, that most of the, the overwhelming majority of the agents that are selected for the president's detail, it's a very small group. You know, it's a myth that everybody in the Secret Service 
protects the president. It's not true. It's actually a very small group of people. You're selected over about an eight to ten year period, and people are weeded out and weeded out, and finally they get to the crop of people they think should defend the president. Mm. I've never, ever seen political ideology get in the way. As a matter of fact, I've seen the exact opposite, that people like myself who, listen, I disagreed with the Clintons as well, um, but I spent more time with Hillary Clinton, I think, than any other protectee, you know, when she was running for Senate in New York and I was in that office. You almost feel an obligation, given that a lot of the staff members, I was never quiet about my politics, a lot of the staff members knew I was a libertarian conservative. You feel an obligation to do your job almost even harder because you don't want to ever lend the impression that politics are getting in the way. That oath meant a lot to me. And keep in mind, if you're not protecting Barack Obama or George Bush or Bill Clinton, you're protecting the office of the presidency. There's a difference. And I know that that difference sounds like, well, what's the difference? He's in the, it, that's, that's not the way it's viewed in the Secret Service. It is a non-political job, and that's why I had to leave. I felt that irresponsible, given my growing frustration with the administration, to be quiet anymore. I just couldn't do it. Well, do some people think your actions amount to an act of, say, treason, for lack of a better word, because you left the president for disagreeing with his principles? I, you know, I ask people who say that, mm-hmm. you know, what? What would you do? You know, if you were in a situation where, you know, you, remember, when you swear an oath, you swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Right. That's your oath as a federal agent, a universal oath. Um, what would you do if you were in a situation where you knew things that were going on were not just politically damaging or temporarily damaging to the country. But, Vip, you knew that things were going were damaging to the very fabric of what constitutes what we know as the United States of America. Put yourself in my shoes. What do you do? Well, it is a personal dilemma. And here I've got something that's larger than life, which is the Constitution. And then I've got my family. Yeah. That was essentially, I mean, that's adequately summed up. I mean, you have your... You're, you're giving up everything. You're giving up income. And don't think for a second it didn't occur to me before I left that my options were going to be limited. You know, when I left to run for the U.S. Senate last time in Maryland. That was, a, to say, an uphill battle. It's understatement of, of the year. I mean, an uphill battle it was almost an impossible task. The fact that we even got as close as we did was remarkable. But, but you, beat, you I, beat nine Republican opponents, right? Something like I, that? I did. Yeah. Now I know the opponents of the primary. We shocked everyone. No one expected us to even get through the primary. And the message resonated. So, I, you know, the audience, I just want you to be clear. It's not like we were giving this up for a payday. Um, it's not that we were giving this up. Even, the, you know, I, um, yeah, any... Any potential job op- opportunities in the future were always going to be tainted. I could never go back to the federal government. I mean, we were giving this up for almost guaranteed bankruptcy at one point. We had to really, really struggle and pare down just to stay afloat. So this wasn't some, like, get-rich-quick scheme. This was something I really genuinely felt passionate about. I mean, I wasn't going to go into a box and be lowered into the ground you know, knowing I contributed to the, to the downfall, the very essence of what makes us great. I wasn't going to do that. Now, you served under Bush and Obama, right? Yeah, and Clinton, that's right. And Clinton. So who, who was the more easygoing, more cooperative? I mean, was it any different between the three? Um, you know, I'm not giving you the company line. I don't do that. When I say they were all really nice guys. Now, I know that's kind of a milquetoast statement, but they all had different qualities. And every time I say that, I always get 
a couple, some nice emails, but I get a lot of nasty emails saying, well, don't say this guy was a nice guy and that guy. Well, listen, I'm not telling you, I'm not making a political statement. I mean, I left the job because I so stringently disagreed with where President Obama was taking us. That should tell you something. But I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and tell you he was rude to me. And he wasn't. And neither was his family. I think the caricature of the family that, that they play in, you know, in the media was not always accurate. I think they were very nice, the, you know, the, the children are extremely well-behaved, they're very mature. You know, President Bush was a really, really passionate guy. I mean, his feelings for the military and the police, I mean, I'd sit right over his shoulder watching him, you know, shed a tear with a gold star mother that had lost a, a child in, in combat. I mean, that you, can, you don't fake that. He wasn't doing it for a photo op. And President Clinton, he had this ability that uh, I've never seen it replicated since, where he could walk in a room full of die-hard conservatives, and he had this ability to make you feel like you were the most important person in the room, and I'd hear them on the way out, you know, I may not vote for the guy, but he's a pretty good guy. I mean, I heard that, if I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times. He had a unique, he was a far better politician, far better politician, I think, than the other two. And again, I don't agree with his policies. I'm just saying the ability to work a room was just, President Clinton had a, it, it was an extraordinary skill. But all three treated you guys with a whole deal of respect. And... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I never had. There was never one of those incidents where, you know, someone threw something at us or, you know, yelled at us. I think they understand that we're there to do a job. And, uh, you know, there's nothing, you know, we don't take political stands while we're there and, you know, we're there to protect their lives. I ne- and their lives. I never had a bad incident. Matter of fact, the president, uh, President Obama. I think his first words to me was he asked me who my tailor was. I have a, I work out a lot, so I always have to get custom suits. And uh, he liked my suits. And one day in the elevator, he tapped me on the elbow, and he asked me who my tailor was, which I thought was kind of funny. I'm like, yeah, come on, you can get a tailor. You're the president of the United States. Was your departure a big deal in in the White House? Um, because I mean, do you have exit interviews? Um, like was. corporations I, do? I didn't expect it to be because I think the Secret Service, in my opinion, underestimated what my intentions were. I mean, I had made clear to, for, you know, there's two weeks from when you leave and you actually leave. You know, you give them two weeks' notice. So in that two-week period, I really expected, you know, some hard questions. Mm. And um, I didn't get them. And my opinion, and I'm just guessing here, is that, they really didn't take seriously my intentions. I mean, you have an employee who walks in and says, you know, hey, listen, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave and I'm going to run for office. And, uh, you know, my guess is they just didn't take that seriously. And they were even in the exit interview. I mean, the questions were minimal at best. So they really underestimated your intentions. Oh, dramatically. I think, um, you know, now they're probably looking back wishing they had really asked more questions about it. I mean, the question to say they were minimal, like I said, I don't even remember, you know, getting any significant questions at all about what my intentions were. So you left because of what was happening in politics, and then you decided to move into politics. So I want to just get your opinion on, on, on a few things. What's wrong with America today? Well, we have a there's a well there's a lot wrong. Uh, I already addressed some of the ideological attacks, but pinning it down, mm. 
to mechanics, like real government operational mechanics of what's going on. Please. You, you have a, an explosive growth in government spending. Now, I, I don't want to give you the de- – I'm not making the debt argument. That's a separate economic argument. That explosive growth in government spending has been met by an explosive growth in what most people call, and I refer to as the, the administrative state, bureaucracy at all levels, EPA, HHS, Secret Service, FBI, DEA, you name it. That, and the growth there, and that's a common feature of government spending, is not a growth in people you need, like FBI agents, but a growth in people who could be maybe unnecessary, like administrative staff and things like that. Well, that growth in government, that growth in the bureaucracy that has had a, a really incredibly negative response, almost more profound than the election of, 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 of bad leaders. Because, one, you can't get rid of the administrative state. They're not elected. Therefore, they're not unelected. And it insulates decision makers from the consequences of their bad decisions. I'll give you a real-world example. Don't you find it odd in the Benghazi situation that whatever you believe happened, that four American patriots, including an ambassador, were savagely killed and not one person, not one, was held responsible. As a matter of fact, not only were they not held responsible, Victoria Newland, who was integral in this operation, was actually promoted. I mean, if that doesn't say to you, I don't care what your political ideology is, wow, something's really wrong with our government. And the reason is the layers of bureaucracy, the growth of the administrative state unnecessarily has allowed Hillary Clinton and all of her underlings to say, hey, we didn't know. It didn't make it up to us. Well, imagine that in your company, in the radio business. Imagine you did a terrible interview and really blew it, and it was awful. Someone would come to you and say, hey, Vip, we don't want to have that guy, but you'd be held accountable, right? If you did a great interview, likewise, you'd get a bonus or whatever it may be. None of that happens in government. None of it. I saw it in the Secret Service. I saw it with every agency I dealt with. There is no incentive for any, anything other than you know, to show up. And so you're saying there's lack of accountability. There is, and the only thing keeping us afloat right now, and even mildly efficient, is there are, and this, I know this isn't the company line for a lot of conservatives, but there is a lot, there are a lot of people out there, government employees, who really passionately believe in their job. They do. They're not there to get rich. I don't know any Secret Service agents who become millionaires working there, but who really, that's the only thing keeping it afloat is the people. But, the, 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 you know, and I, and I'm, I've always said, how does a government full of really passionately good people, and I mean that across, we dealt with a ton of agencies in the Secret Service for a number of reasons. How does it continue to fail the American people? The IRS targets people, HHS can't do a website, the Boston bombing, the guy, uh, Sarniev brother was in the computer in the Tides database and nobody knew it. You know, Benghazi, no one's fired. Fast and Furious, the Department of Justice, hey, there's guns in Mexico, what was their response? Oh, we didn't know. But no one holds these people accountable. So it's a very serious problem, and the, the incentives are all wrong. The incentives at the low end are to keep spending money. Hey, that's your budget. Spend it or you won't get more next year. And the incentives at the high end are to spend more money to hire more bureaucrats because it sandwiches you, and it enables you, when good decisions happen, to take credit. But when bad decisions happen, they just go, oh, the bureaucracy did it. I didn't know. Very, very dangerous problem. Now, when you've traveled with the president um, internationally, What's the image of America? Well, right now, it's 
it's terrible, and it's really sad to see. Um, Over the three presidents, have you seen a decline in the image of America? I did. I, I've traveled quite a bit. I mean, right. I traveled to 30 countries before. So like I with Clinton, there. then Bush, then Obama. Was was it worsening as time was progressing? Um, it's been worsening quite a bit. After, you know, the initial, and I, and I don't want to get into the politics, but I was not a big supporter of the Iraq war. But after we had thought we'd completed the mission there, the the image of America was actually pretty good from what I remember traveling overseas. Uh, towards the end of the Bush administration, we were we were really losing steam. And after President Obama, there was an initial, what I thought to be a little bit of hope, you know, his hope and change motto. But uh, now, I mean, I haven't been in the Secret Service in two years, but I traveled extensively in my last year, and it was not good. It was not good. The image was almost of a, and this is sad, it was almost of a weakness and indecisiveness. And indecisiveness by the world leader, uh, for the exportation of liberty and freedom is never a good thing. And in terms of our culture, the American culture, over time, what are your views? Well, I mean, we're having a real problem with it. You know, and I, listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a libertarian at heart. I, I don't believe in that government has a role in culture per se. I believe strongly that that's an individual choice, you know, stay out of people's front doors. What goes on, if it doesn't violate someone else's civil liberties, it's not your business. But I don't think we can argue that, the, you know, what I call the snooky culture, you know, has taken over. You know, the Jersey Shore, that character, I mean, she's got, the, what, three million followers on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you go to your local congressional representative, I knock on a lot of doors and I say, who's your, con- who's your congressman? Oh, I have no idea. Well, who's snooky? Oh, Snooky from the Jersey Shore. I mean, citizenship VIP has a price, and the price is some degree of activation and, and, uh, and acknowledgement and interaction with your local government to understand what's going on. I mean, even now you're seeing it with, you know, Obamacare. Not that it's so much a culture question, but it, it almost becomes a culture of political apathy. Well, oh, yeah, Obamacare is great. And then you say, well, what's great about it? And you ask people. Uh, I do this all the time. And they're like, well, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just good. People get health insurance. How? They don't even understand the process. So, yeah, I think that a lot of that has to do with this, you know, almost mind-warping effects of just 24-hour saturation with, you know, the snooky effect. It's not a good thing. But I think people are more tired politically. There's so much garbage going around. Yeah. Uh, a lot of our own politicians or people who want to be politicians, like recently um, Anthony Weiner and things like that, uh, the people who stand for that profession don't really give it a good image. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with and, you. And Snooki doesn't claim to be anything else except Snooki. Yeah, it's a good point. But, you know, Vip, you don't get to be tired. You know, politics is not golf. I say this all the time. You know, with golf, you go out to golf, the weather gets bad. You paid your whatever it is, your golf course fee. They don't care if you walk off the golf course. No one cares. Matter of fact, the guy's with you. If it's raining, probably like, hey, it's raining. Let's get out of here. No big deal. You can give up. That's not politics. You can't get tired and give up. Politics is boxing. It's tie boxing. It's MMA fighting. When you stop punching, the other guy's still whooping your butt. It's not that you can't get tired. It's not an option. Is it was it Plato who said, you know, you don't get involved in politics. You're destined to be ruled by people dumber than yourself. I mean, you don't get to get tired. It's not an option. It's not, it really isn't, and I can't say that enough to be. I mean, I live in Maryland. Believe me, I understand. I'm a Republican in Maryland. I'm one of about two or three people here. Um, it's difficult, but people ask me all the time, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep be- – be- 
because there's not another option. I mean, what's your solution? Just let the guy keep punching you in the face until what? Until you die in the ring? So it's not a choice. And I think in America we're almost victims of our own middle-class success. We think, oh, if I just leave it alone, they're not going to come for me. Well, just because the government's not driving to your house, uh, not knocking on your door now, doesn't mean they're not driving to your house for something. Well, I get the feeling there's usually that mindset that let someone else worry about it. Oh, yeah. Because there are enough people out there who who, who, uh, stand up and shout. But ultimately, then everyone stays sitting down. Right. There's that, that the, you know, the, the prisoner's dilemma in economics, you know. It, it always benefits you to just, you know, let the other guy act first. And the problem is, like you just said, when the other guy doesn't act, there's really no incentive for you to do anything, um, to change. And, and I, I never subscribe to that. I've been a type A alpha my entire life, and I like to take the bull by the horns and drive him into the ground and whoop his butt. Uh, that's the only way you're going to change things. You're not going to you got to get off the couch and you know, put the Cheetos down and do something. Well, without naming names, and I'll respect your right to privacy. Without naming names, did you see apart from Obama obviously his speeches didn't uh, inspire you. Uh, did you see acts of sleaze or lack of ethics? Oh, yeah. In 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 the White House? Oh, not yeah, not so much within the grounds, I could say, but within the staff, yeah, oh, absolutely. The... I mean, there's a, you know, it's party time on the road for them. And that was one of the reasons I was so bothered when I left, and mm-hmm. especially with the, you know, when the tours were shut down. Because an obvious question you brought up before is, well, you know, if you were in the Secret Service, well, probably, you, maybe you should keep quiet about this stuff. Well, why? The president feels no need to keep quiet about throwing the Secret Service guys under the bus. I mean, he, you know, the, 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 the White House tours thing. Everybody knows the Secret Service had nothing to do with that, everyone. And yet they keep quiet while the president says, oh, yeah, the Secret Service did it. You know, and then, you know, you had the issue in Colombia. The Secret Service, and those guys should have been punished. I want to be clear on that. But the service handled it appropriately. They get the president piling on as if his staff people don't go on the road and do the same thing. Party. So I could mean, you share with us any instances that you saw that disturbed you? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned... Uh, you know, I, I, whenever I talk about this, is, you know, when we were in the Secret Service, they had these wheels up uh, parties. When the you know wheels up meeting, when Air Force One would leave, it was just basically a sop to, you know, local staff, local police, and things like that. It was a party they'd throw. It wasn't a, they weren't big deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, I hated going to. I thought they were pretty boring. But you know, there was this whole conversation about oh, these Secret Service guys, these wheels up parties. The only misbehavior I ever saw at these parties were by White House staff people acting like fools, and you know getting drunk like it was party time, and yet they're the first ones. Again, it goes back to that administrative state that, where there's no – everybody's insulated from poor decision-making. Oh, it's just the staff. Don't worry about it. Well, on it's whose like, dime are they having the party? Uh, it's usually, a, you know, locals or something. It depends. It's not – you know, it's not, I don't think it's a taxpayer-funded right. thing. It may have been on some, but I don't particularly know which one. They, they changes depending on where you are. So, But, you know, it is odd that – Again, it's like the staff. The staff, like it's this, you know, fugue state. No, but the staff. It's no, no, one, no one's ever in charge because they don't have to be. It's not a private company. They're not incentivized to produce a product for less cost or produce a better product for the same cost or to figure out taxpayers' savings measures. There's no incentive for that. The incentive is to treat it like it's an entitlement. Whatever you can take, you take. You want to throw a party, you throw a party. Now, you're running in politics. Do you Um, realistically think 
you could beat the system. I mean, you know, you're a one-man army at the moment. Yes, I do, because the grassroots army behind me is extremely powerful. As a matter of fact, a number of people have told me that they are incredibly impressed, given my lack of alignment with any specific interest groups or, or you know, large packs or anything like that. But that I'll, might come when you start getting more and more influence. Well, it, it may. And, you know, I don't have any problem certainly accepting support from interest groups where our interests are the same. I mean, that's not an issue. I mean, if we, you know, if there's an interest group who wants to help me and they believe in low taxes and patient-driven health care, it's not a problem. But my last campaign was driven almost exclusively by just regular old grassroots $25 supporters. So I can tell you for a fact that you can beat the system. You just have to be able to put out a clear, coherent message in a way that's appetizing to people. Having a message isn't good enough. The presentation and the marketing of it matters, too. And I did it with a passion. I never used notes. I'd go out and just speak to people, and a lot of my speeches went viral, and it just really exploded. Now, we lost. So you may say, well, you didn't really beat the system, but I dispute that strongly. You know, you but you came close, right? You came close to winning. Well, we won the primary, but once we got close, a third uh, party, an independent, jumped in and dumped about $8 million on my head. God forbid the Democrats had an actual race on their hands, and that really split the anti-incumbent vote. We were in a little bit of trouble after that. But you don't accumulate the following. We have you know, massive email list, a huge social media following, you know, a donor list like we have by just putting out a milk toast message. People really believed in what we had to say, and uh, I think we did beat the system. How do you handle critics when they question the fact that you might just you're just a high-level bodyguard, and what do you know about politics and leadership? Yeah, I always laugh. A high-level bodyguard. I, I say, do you know what it's like to walk into an active war zone in Afghanistan with about two million dollars to spend in seven days, and they tell you make this work? I mean, you have no idea. That, You're given a you know, budget? Uh, roughly. I mean, you can go and supersede it when you need to. Right. But when you're the lead advance, like I was, I, I did the, the largest number of foreign advances for a United States president. I'm pretty sure in the history of the What's a foreign advance? Sorry. A foreign advance is a trip overseas the president takes. And when you're the lead advance, it's basically your mission. You're it. You go over there with a the team, yeah. and you direct everything. It takes a long time to do that. Now, the, you know, of all the agents in the president's detail, very few get to do even one uh, foreign advance. Very few. I did three. So, you know, you go over there with a budget, and it is you. You have to design everything. You have to figure out how to transport hundreds of thousands of pounds of equipment, personnel, everything from plane tickets to military clearances, weapons, a security plant, a tactical, medical, chemical IED, airborne, fire prevention plan, potential geological disasters like earthquakes. You have to know everything about local intel, terrorist groups. Um, it is an extremely complicated job, and if you're relying on bodyguard work to do it, yeah, you're in the wrong line of work. It's a cerebral exercise. Once the president comes in, it's all over. Wow. So you have to take into account everything. Oh, everything. I, I used to say that we take into account almost ridiculous circumstances so that the president doesn't have to and can go to sleep at night. I mean, it's not good enough for me as a lead advance agent to have a, 
oh, well, here's plan A and here's plan B. No, you have to have plan A, B, all the way through Z. And once you get to Z, you'd even see it. The staff would be like, well, that's never going to happen. Of course it's never going to happen because I just told you how we're going to prevent it from happening. And, you know, who would have thought planes would have flew into the World Trade Center? No one anticipated that. But that's what we do. And I can't tell you how complicated what we do is. There's a reason, you know, a very limited number of people even make it to the president's detail. And that's after about eight years of seasoning. And even then, very limited, uh, very limited number of those guys who make it ever get to do an advance, elite advance at all, no less a foreign one. Now, you go out and, and lay out all these plans for prevention. Who's right. assessing what you do? There's a supervisor who comes in within the last couple of days and gives a, gives a look over to your plan, someone who's done lead advances before and checks it out. But very rarely will they override. I mean, unless you've shown complete incompetence, which, as I said, is tough because there's already a multiple-stage vetting process. That by the time you've gotten there, you would have already likely failed. So it's very rare for a supervisor to come in and overturn a decision you've made. Matter of fact, there was one in Afghanistan, I remember specifically, that was critical. I mean, a critical, I'm talking about, the, it was probably the most stressful decision I made as a Secret Service agent. And I can't say specifically what it was, but it was a life or death call. And I mean that. And the president wanted to do it. They wanted to do it no matter what. And I remember the staff saying, listen, we'll cancel it. If you absolutely tell me this can't be done without uh, severe danger, but we would really appreciate it if you would find a way to make this thing happen. And I remember being with David Petraeus and uh, a bunch of, uh, bunch of agents from another agency, and I thought it was safe. It was a squeaker, but it was safe. And I remember being on that video conference call with, uh, back at the White House saying, you know, they all looked at me and said, are we doing it? And I said, yeah, we can do it. And that was it. But that was a stressful moment. Luckily, it worked out. But if it didn't, it, believe me when I tell you, it was on me. It was no one else. Hmm. Now, we talked about the exit interview. And, and I guess the government's kicking themselves because they didn't think that you would go on to do what you are doing. Yeah. Do you feel sometimes that they're trying to monitor you? Um, Do you feel any obstacle about your progress in politics, that you might leak something that could be very damaging, that you know something? No, but I did hear something. No, there's nothing there. You know, when there's no there there, you don't have to – there's really nothing to worry about. You know, when there's a there there, you've got to do damage controls. There's no damage. There's nothing to control. But there are some agents you tickle wrong. You know what I'm saying? There are people – I had a very – listen, I was a – I've been described a number of ways, usually as type A, A, B, all business mm -hmm. by the numbers. And that, you know, doesn't, there are some people who don't like that. So there were a few who didn't like to go out in advances with me. Some of them like to, I don't know, maybe go out and have a little downtime. Well, we didn't do downtime on my trips. So I'm sure there were a couple out there. But there's very, I mean, I get compliments all the time. It's just a matter of fact, a local sheriff in Western Maryland who uh, ran into a guy who used to supervise Camp David. And the sheriff came up to me and he said, hey, you're the real deal. I said, well, make you say that. He said, I spoke to this guy and he was telling me all your stories and I was pretty impressed. And I've known this sheriff like three years, so I thought it was kind of funny. I said, you just decided that now? He said, well, you know, you always wait for that one piece of bad news, but uh, you'll never hear, there's, like I said, there's no there there. There's only good, I mean, I was, I left 
my, anybody can Freedom of Information Act my records. I was a, uh, I was their top-ranked guy when I walked out the door. No, you were, I'm sure, but now, you know, you're in the spotlight yeah. before you were trying to avoid the spotlight. Yeah, it's true. You were in front of the podium, relatively anonymous. You know, now you're behind the podium giving speeches. And, uh, you know, I do realize and I am sympathetic to the fact that there is some consternation, you know, with Secret Service management. It's not really with the guys. The guys still like me. I still hear from some of them. Um, but I do get it. I, I understand it's supposed to be an apolitical job. But, you know, Vip, there are times in your life when you feel like there's a greater cause. And to just walk away from it, I couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I couldn't. I, I felt like we were really in trouble. And uh, I had a mission. And, and now being in the public eye, do you sometimes feel you're being watched? Not necessarily by your supporters or critics, but really by the government? Um, I'm No. I'm, I, I have to, you know, obviously we've had, just had the NSA scandal. Mm -hmm. so, and I'm not, I couldn't tell you definitively that they're not checking out a couple emails here and there. But uh, like I said, when there's no... There, there. I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. Now, in your manifesto on your website, you say, I will always be one of you. I will never be one of them. Yeah. Why do you have so much resentment towards the politicians? Because there is a real battle in America right now. It's legitimate, and uh, you don't see it every day. And it's not Democrats or Republicans. And that may sound crazy. You may say, well, you're running for office as a Republican. What do you mean? Um, that was my bad uh, childhood voice imitation. <laughs> um, the real battle is elitists, insiders, versus populists. If you saw what I saw behind the scenes, the way you're talked about, you meaning gen the general you, the citizens of the United States of America, mm -hmm. the non-insiders, the middle-class plumber like my father was, or the checkout clerk like my mom was in a grocery store, the way you're talked about, like chess pieces in a chess game you'll never, ever be allowed to play. You know, that taints you, and that leaves a scar that doesn't matter how much neosporin you put on it, it ain't going away. And I just wish there was more I could say about that, but I do feel an obligation to the Secret Service to keep certain things secret. But I, I cannot emphasize to you enough in a bipartisan fashion how the, the culture uh, of just let them eat cake in D.C. has so pervaded the administration, the Hill, the administrative state, that you're a non-factor. You're viewed strictly as a tool to get to an end for power for someone else. And it really is sad. It was never, ever meant to be this way. What's been the worst case of inappropriate behavior that you've seen? Not about the president necessarily or which one, but just in general, um, within the administration out of all three, I mean, what's been the worst case? And it doesn't, you don't have to tell me which administration it was, but where you thought, you know, they're abusing the, the privilege and, and the influence that they have. I would say that the emphasis in, on shaking people down, whether it be donors or corporations, the, the, let's call it the tacit pressure of the White House and the Hill, where people call and say something without saying it, if you know what I mean. Right. 
kind of like if you called me for an interview and I said, hey, Vip, you know, I really need a new, uh, new suit. It costs about 500 I didn't ask you for any money, but you know exactly what I said before that interview. Right. That kind of stuff happens all the time. There are these tacit shakedowns where you can never pin it on them, but you know exactly what they're doing. And you, listen- you can't call it corruption, but you can call it malpractice. Oh, and you can call it unethical and immoral and, frankly, disgusting. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And if you heard these conversations, like I said, this emphasis on just shaking people down and frightening people and using the heavy hand of government to make people and businesses and small businesses and, and interest groups do things that they don't want to do. You know, movie House of Cards, someone asked me once on that show, you know, uh, is it like House of Cards? It's a you know, show about insider D.C. baseball. I said, no, That's it's right. worse. You know, House of Cards is like a fairy tale compared to what goes on, really goes on. So it's wow. really disturbing. Well, let's talk about your future. What are the first, what are the top three things that you would do to correct the state of politics today? Well, the first thing is you have to wipe clean the tax code. Now, I know that sounds like a bold endeavor, but the tax code is the source of almost 90 plus percent of the corruption in the United States right now. Every American agrees the tax code is too complicated. So you have to ask yourself, being on radio and if you're listening, well, why doesn't it change? If everyone agrees, it's almost universal, bipartisan. Well, it doesn't change because that's how politicians dole out favors. You know, if you have a company, I'm wearing a blue shirt. If you have a company that comes in and produces blue shirts and they want a tax break to keep the company with white shirts uncompetitive because if they get a tax break, they obviously get to, you know, pump more money into their company rather than pay taxes. Well, they're going to put the white shirt company out of business. So what do they do? They spend a bunch of money on D.C. lobbyists to get their own specific tax break. That's why the tax code is 70,000 pages long. Now, multiply that over thousands upon thousands of businesses and industries through tax credits, tax breaks, earned income tax credits. Can you imagine the distortions we're talking about? I just told you one example of how a potentially good company, the white shirt company there, was put out of business. Do you know how many other companies are being put out of business by a distorted tax code? I assure you, it may not be the sexiest topic to talk about, but it is the seed, the seed that grows this, this plant of corruption that is just, it's a weed growing into your house, your car engine, the sidewalk cracks. If you got rid of that, one with a flat tax or a fair tax type model, you would see a lot of this stuff evaporate almost overnight. What about the other two things? We need a balanced budget amendment. Uh, again, it's been talked about thousands of times, but the truth is there needs to be some constitutional limitation to how much of our grandkids' money we can waste away on our little pet projects. Because make no mistake, that's what it is. And if I had to say third, I would say we would have to seriously look at health care delivery in this country right now. The third-party payer model we have, where the government ultimately pays, a bureaucrat pays Mm -hmm. for your health care with your money, why would you think he would care about your health care more than you would, even though he took your money to do it? Now, I have no problem with a safety net, but that safety net should be based on your choices, not the choices of a bureaucrat. It's absurd. We have to look at I mean, you look at the statistics on post-surgical deaths from patients with Medicaid compared to patients with private insurance. It's, it's an apocalypse. I mean, it's, it's absurd. You're 90% more likely to die after surgery on government-provided compassionate, and I use that term lightly, medicine, 
than you were if you had private insurance. How, well, how's that compassionate? We need a total revamping of the system and, and, a, and a look at private choices based on means-tested benefits to people who need it. What do you think is the main reason that you get votes? Because I speak from the heart and people see me as genuinely real. They know I'm not reading from a speech. You know, when I talk about things like, you know, what it's do like. Do they think, I mean, it's, it's a balance between being politically sophisticated and, I guess, being politically real? Yeah, I think, well, honestly, the real part, I think, matters more. I mean, I'd be more than happy to discuss the Laffer curve and FERPA and all these very complicated, wonky issues. I do a lot of homework on federal policy, but... Uh, frankly speaking, I don't think that's what gets you votes. I think that's expected that you know that. And once they see it, they understand. What they get from me is, you know, when I talk about poverty, I don't talk about it because I read it in a book. You know, I struggled with it. You know, we made it into the middle class. My life's not some horror story. But believe me when I tell you, we went through many years where we ate the Cheerios for dinner and you looked at the powdered milk. Uh, I, I mean, you know, the, when people talk about catching rats, you know, I know what that's like. You put the peanut butter, you know, you don't put cheese like they show you in the movies. I mean, I can speak to people when I talk about school choice. I'm a product of it. So I'm not just telling you what I read in a research study. I'm telling you that I'm only speaking to you in coherent sentences because of that. You know, when I talk about small businesses, you know, my wife and I struggle with that. You know, when I was going to ask you, I said, how do you put bread on your table? It's tough. I mean, we, we, we live a pretty Spartan existence. We do okay. Again, we have a nice house. It's not... Uh, yeah, we're struggling, but, you know, we had to get rid of a lot of little luxuries. I mean, even now, our Obama, due to Obamacare, our insurance plan was canceled. So now we have to look at other options. We have to pay, I think it's 200 dollars more a month. So I had a gym membership, which ironically probably keeps you in better shape health-wise, that, I'm, you know, we now have to cancel. It's not a sob story. It's not like we're going to go under because we do that. But I thought the whole purpose of Obamacare was prevention and, you know, Stay in shape. So, you know, the unintended consequences of these disastrous policies, when I speak to people about them, I speak to people because it happened to me. I mean, I put a Facebook post up a week ago with a picture of the letter canceling my insurance plan. Mm -hmm. It was seen by 350,000 people. It was shared so often. And like I said, that's because I go through these problems. I don't talk about them like the president who led a very pampered existence. You know, I talk about them because they really happen to me. How can our listeners learn more about you? Well, my website is Bongino, my last name, B-O-N-G-I-N-O mm -hmm. dot -O com, and we have our social media accounts linked through there, and I monitor them myself. That's all my words, so if you'd like to give us a like on Facebook or a follow on Twitter, I, I would appreciate it. And what yeah. are your details on Facebook and Twitter? Uh, it's facebook.com backslash dan.bongino. And Twitter, my handle is at dbongino, at D-B-O-N-G-I-N-O. Dan, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Vip. It was great. Wishing you all the best and hope you'll come back to share more soon. You got it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. For more fascinating stories, log on to foxnewsradio.com and click on to the Vip Jaswell Report. Keep your ears open, too, for the next airing of the Vip Jaswell Report coming soon.